Well, I'm glad to be here this evening, this last week, and I was in Seattle, and I got to speak at a church in the Seattle area. It's a group of young people that have been inspired by the GYC movement, and they're on fire for God, so it was exciting to see other places who have a passion for the things of God, and that was... Um, refreshing for me to go and see some people somewhere else who have a love for God's word and his truth. I've also been very blessed by <clears throat> going through the book of Romans. And as I said at the end of last week's study, if you've missed the first five chapters, that's okay, so to speak. Because Romans 6, 7, and 8 is where the money is in the book of Romans. Of course, it helps if you understand the first five chapters when we get to chapter 6. But Romans chapter 6 is really one of the pinnacles of this book. So you get through the first five chapters and Paul has been building a case. And then when he gets to chapter 6, it's like the closing argument in court. You, you save your best for your final pitch, so to speak, and, and chapter 6 is one of those chapters in this book. So, <clears throat> when we got to the end of chapter 5 last week, we did verses 13 through 21, and verses 13 through 21 are a comparison of the effect that Adam has had on humanity, and the effect that Christ has had on humanity, and we saw that in verse 15, yes, Adam has had an effect, but the effect that Christ has had on us is much more. And so Adam has an effect, but the effect that Christ has on us is much more. And then by the time you get to, um, and, and verse 15 shows that it's the gift by grace that Christ has given to us. Then by the time you get to verse 21, we see that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is where we wrapped up last week. And the question is, how does grace reign in our lives? What does Romans 5.21 say? Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is grace all about? Grace is about the righteousness of Jesus Christ reigning in our lives. And then when he gets to chapter 6, verse 1, he continues this thought. Verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, what did he just say grace was? Grace was the righteousness of Christ reigning in our lives. And now he's saying, so what, what, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, God forbid. And as we've studied in the book of Romans, there's other places where Paul says, God forbid. We see it in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, where he says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. And then he says is God, in verse 5, Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Verse 6, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? 
And so Paul likes to use this phrase, God forbid. And in chapter 6, when he says, God forbid, what he's saying is, when we have God's grace, we do not continue in sin. And he knows that some people may be thinking, because of chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. He knew that some people would take that verse and say, hey, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The more sin, the more grace. And he counters that argument very quickly. So if someone, and I know Christians do this, they'll read Romans 5 verse 20 and they'll make that argument. But all you have to do is go two and three verses down to see that when Paul asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, here's a question to consider. Paul, Paul's made it very clear that when we have God's grace, we don't continue in sin. That's clear. And his reason for that is we are dead to sin. If we are dead to sin, we do not continue in sin. So think about it this way. This is maybe a little bit of a crude illustration, but when a person dies, if you were to touch them or kick them or anything else, would they respond to you? No, they're dead. And Paul is using the illustration that when we have God's grace, we are dead to sin. But here's the thing to consider. If you've studied the first five chapters of Romans, which we've done here in our studies, Paul has been developing a case for righteousness by faith through the first five chapters. When he comes to chapter 6, he believes that he's proved his case clearly enough that he's, with respect to being under God's grace, receiving his righteousness through his grace, his argument is that we are dead to sin. So, <clears throat> Romans chapter 6 is simply an explanation of the theology that Paul has developed in the first five chapters. It's not a new shift. It's not shifting from, for example, justification to sanctification. He's continuing in the same line of reasoning that he's been using through the first five chapters. And when you get to chapter 6, now he's saying, when we have the righteousness of God through his grace, we are dead to sin. And if you go back and look at these concepts, you know, by the time you get to chapter 3, we see that we are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. We see that Abraham considered not his own body dead. He believed in the promises of God that even though physically his body was dead, that through the creative power of God, God could speak his creative power into his life so that he and Sarah could both have a child. And by the end of 
chapter 4, we see that those who believe on God who raised up Jesus from the dead will receive imputed righteousness also. We've gone through those concepts. <clears throat> we see then that if we need to be raised up from the dead, spiritually speaking, and we're going to get to this later in chapter 6, it gives us the idea that we had been dead in trespasses and sin, but then when we have the righteousness of God, instead of being dead in trespasses and sins, we're now dead to sin. And Paul's going to develop this concept here. So he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And this thought is going to be developed here now. In verse 3, he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So... When we become a Christian, what's the outward demonstration that we take to prove that we are a Christian? Baptism. So baptism, as Paul is speaking here in verse 3, he says, look, we're baptized into Jesus Christ. And it's not just going into the water and then coming up in some kind of formality. This is a symbol of being baptized into Christ's death. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we are baptized into his death. Now, that's a serious concept to ponder. You realize then when you are baptized that you are partaking in what Christ partook of when he died. It's not just, a, well, I'm going to go to the baptistry and, and get baptized, and now I'm going to be a Christian. I mean, that's great, but what Paul is saying is when we are baptized, we are baptized into his death. You had a, a question or a comment? You said it quite a few times already. I'm just asking one more time. Uh -huh. Is the same baptizing you're talking about that I partake of at the Azure Hills Church? Yes, when we are baptized, whatever church is, in your case, Azure Hills or any other church, when we are baptized, it's a symbol of being baptized into Christ's death. Paul's being very clear about this here. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, he says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. So he's continuing this thought. But when Christ died, did he stay in the grave? Obviously not. So now the next point that continues here. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So we're buried with him by baptism into death. Christ was crucified. He went into the grave. But Christ was resurrected. And when we come up out of that watery grave... It is so that we will walk in newness of life. It means we are dead to the old life of sin, and we've been resurrected to a new life in Christ. That's a beautiful concept. And I don't know about you, but um, if the Christian life was just a formality where I went into a baptistry, 
went under the water, came up, and then lived the same old life the rest of my life without any change, what would the purpose of Christianity be? Where would be, where would be the power of, of Christianity? Where would be the power of Christ? And so here Paul is saying, we will walk in newness of life. Now let's connect this again back to Romans 4 with the concept of the faith of Abraham. Abraham had faith in the creative power of God. By verse 21, we see he was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able to also to perform. Verse 22, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Notice verse 24, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So notice this, we will receive righteousness if we believe what? On God who raised up Jesus from the dead. And what does Romans 6 tell us about Jesus being raised up from the dead? So Jesus is raised up from the dead. And like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, what about us? We are raised up to walk in newness of life. So in Romans 4, when it talks about believing on him that raised up Jesus from the dead, what are we believing? Exactly. We are believing that God will give us a new life. Our life may have been dead in, in trespasses and sin. And like Abraham, Abraham looks at the situation and he says, Look, my body is physically dead. I can't have children anymore. I can't have a quote-unquote new birth. And we, as, and that's a spiritual analogy, we as are called to have the faith of Abraham, to be his children, to be of the seed of Abraham. And yet we look at our lives and we say, but God, my life is dead in trespasses and sins. How could I live a new life in Christ? And the answer is, look at Abraham. He was fully persuaded that what God promised, he was able also to perform. Do you believe in God's word that it will accomplish what it says? And what God is asking us to believe with respect to Jesus being raised from the dead is that, look, like as I raised Jesus from the dead, I will raise you to walk in newness of life so that your life will no longer be the old life, being dead in trespasses and sins, but that you will be dead to sin and walk in newness of life. You had a... Mm -hmm. And it's important because it is there. Mm -hmm. But I think there's more to it as well because what frustrates a lot of people in that Christian walk isn't just their sin, mm -hmm. the circumstances surrounding them, maybe losses that they've experienced, mm -hmm. or you know, family circumstances. Right. Excellent point, and um, for purposes of the recording, I'm going to repeat that, that part of the new birth experience is believing that God can also transform the people around you. And if you look at the experience of Abraham, 
Look, look at what it says. He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he had to overcome two things, his physical impossibility and her impossibility. And so part, and we talked about this before, but part of the new birth experience that Abraham experienced is not only having a transformation in your own life, but your faith being able to produce fruit in other people. And so Abraham's faith produced fruit in Sarah, not just himself. So I appreciate that thought. So here we have Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We also walk in newness of life. And in Romans 4, again, it, it's saying that when we believe, righteousness will be imputed to us. So that's justification by faith. So... <clears throat> Justification by faith is more than just a legal declaration. Justification by faith is being raised up spiritually from the dead to walk in newness of life. Abraham had righteousness imputed to him. We will have righteousness imputed to us if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, Continuing on here in chapter 6, in verse 5, it says, For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So, simple point. If we die the, way, the same way Christ died, we'll have the same kind of resurrection. That's pretty straightforward. How did Christ die? In Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but thine be done. If it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Same as us. And it's interesting, Ellen White says, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. Faith and Works, page 100. Christ was fully surrendered when he went to the cross, and when we are fully surrendered, we will be justified. Now, continuing on in verse 6. <clears throat> Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin. So, what would be the one key word in this verse, verse 6? Crucified. What is crucified? Our old man is crucified. What's that? Right, it means that you are put to death. And it's not necessarily a pleasant experience, but our old man is crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth, or from this point forward, we should not serve sin. Yes? Is it also that a way of life is being put to death? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A way of, uh, Christ says that he is the way. Right. But there's also another way. Exactly. Sure. So by dying in Christ, we are putting away mm -hmm. the life of the adversary. That's right. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read verse 7, and then we're going to connect the two. Verse 7 says, For he that is dead is freed from sin. What is the one word in verse 7 that is similar to the key word in verse 6? The word dead is similar to what word in verse 6? Crucified. 
So in verse 6, our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. Verse 7 says, for he that is dead is what? Freed from sin. So when you are crucified, you are dead and you are freed from sin. Now, how many of you, just by curiosity, have a um, King James Version? It's not, it's not a big issue here, but look at your marginal reading. What does the marginal reading for freed from sin say? It says justified. Okay, so look at this. For he that is dead is justified from sin. So here, and this is Paul... It, you know, the King James translators decided to say freed from sin, but the real word is justified from sin. If you're dead, you're justified. What's the same word or a similar word in verse 7 as verse 6 for dead? Being crucified. So if you're crucified, you're justified. I believe the translators at the time the King James may mm -hmm. recognize that Paul also Sure. Absolutely. And, and so it is true that in the judgment to be freed from sin means that you don't have to face the wrath of God in the judgment, which is obviously good news. Um, it's just, it's interesting though that um, <clears throat> the concept of justification has become so misunderstood in the Christian church, even in Adventism. Um, people believe that you can be justified in continuing in sin, even known sin, and you're not having victory, but you're still covered with the righteousness of Christ, but your life is still a life that's basically dead in trespasses and sins, but because you believe in Christ, you're covered. And Paul is not teaching this here in Romans 6. The, yeah, that's what the Nicolaitans teach, that the deeds of the flesh don't affect the purity of the soul. And what Paul is teaching here is, look... When we are justified, point number one in chapter six, how shall we continue in sin? Because we are dead to sin. Point number two, when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. And just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we walk in newness of life. What does that mean? Another way to look at it is this. Look, if we're planted together in the likeness of his death, we're going to be also in the likeness of his resurrection. How was he planted? He was crucified. So verse 6, our old man is crucified with him. And Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we walk in newness of life. And when we are dead, in verse 7, we are freed from sin. I don't know about you, but that's something I want. I want to be free from sin. And I'm thankful for the power of God that we can be free from sin. Thank God that in his love and mercy for us that he knew, of a, or he came up with a way by sending Jesus so that we can be free from sin. I'm thankful for that. And again, he that is dead is freed from sin, or he that is dead is justified from sin. Now, <clears throat> we've made the connection before between Galatians 2 and Romans 6. 
of being justified and being crucified. You could say that he that is dead is justified, or you could say because dead and crucified are similar words, you could say that he that is crucified is freed from sin, or he that is crucified is justified from sin. So how do we become justified? We are become crucified with Christ. What does that mean? We... <coughs> According to Paul, it means to be planted together in the likeness of his death. What was the likeness of his death? Jesus in Gethsemane saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Entire surrender. And again, LMY says God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. So complete 100% surrender to Jesus Christ. Now, in Galatians 2, verse 16, it says that we're justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 2, 20, it says that when we are crucified with Christ, we live by the faith of the Son of God, who is Jesus. So when we're crucified, we live by the faith of the Son of God. When we are justified, we're justified by the faith of the Son of God. So therefore, to be crucified is to be justified, or to be justified is to be crucified. And the key point is, in Galatians 2.20, when we are crucified with Christ, who lives in us? Christ lives in us. So when we exercise faith, whose faith are we exercising? Christ's faith. Now, think about it this way. Because, and I was talking to my father-in-law, Gerard Domstick, about this whole concept of, well, you know, Galatians... 2.20 and Galatians 2.16 talk about being justified by the faith of Christ. When I'm crucified, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And the King James Version is the only version that translates it as faith of the Son of God or faith of Jesus Christ. And all the other versions, including the New King James Version, which my father-in-law uses, say faith in Jesus or faith in the Son of God. And I said, you know, I'm not a, a scholar and I don't know how to read Greek. I really don't. Um, so I couldn't look at the Greek and say, oh, it's of, not in. Um, and I said, you know, have you looked at that? And um, he said, yeah. Um, he's like, if you look at the Greek, it's the faith of the Son of God, the faith of Jesus Christ. And he asked me a question. He's like, think about it this way, Norman. <clears throat> Are you trying to say that your faith in Jesus saves you? Or, it, however, if you say it's the faith of Jesus that saves me, whose merits am I saved by? You're saved by the merits of Jesus Christ, not by your own merits. It's interesting. If you take that translation that says, I, I'm, sa I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you're basically saying that you're, you're justified by your faith in something, which becomes then your own merits. Whereas if you're justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, it's his faith and his merits that save you. And that's righteousness by faith. So, and the only way we receive that faith of Jesus Christ is to be surrendered 100%. So I thank my father-in-law for adding some theological clarity to something that I already thought was the case. Because when you connect this concept of the third angel's message... <clears throat> It's the faith of Jesus Christ in the third angel's message, not faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the third angel's message. So, he that is dead is freed from sin. He that is dead is justified from sin. Verse 8, 
now if we be dead with Christ, so if we're dead with Christ, that means we're crucified with Christ, that means we're justified by faith. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And you know, that's similar to Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And I love what Paul does next, starting in verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Okay? So Jesus died on Calvary. He went into the grave. He was resurrected on the third day. And Paul says here in verse 9, he, he's raised from the dead and he dieth no more, and death has no more dominion over him. In other words, you know, Jesus died, and he's not going to come back and die on the cross again, because death has no more power over him. And <clears throat> it's interesting, death has no more dominion over him, <clears throat> that helps us then understand verse 14 when Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. We're going to get back to that point. But think about this. Christ died, and he died once. Death has no more dominion over him. He's not going to come back and be crucified again and again and again, literally speaking. Death has no more dominion over him. And then verse 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And then verse 11, notice the word Paul uses. What's the first word Paul uses here? Likewise. So just as Christ died and he died unto sin once, death has no more dominion over him. Paul says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what are we dead to? Sin. And yet we are alive through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. So when we are dead to sin, sin therefore does not reign in our mortal bodies. Now here's an interesting point, you know, Desmond Ford came along and injected some new theology into our church. And what he liked to say, well, he said was, sin remains but does not reign. He's like, there's always going to be some sin in your life, but it doesn't reign in your life. And yet Paul is saying, how, that, how shall we that are dead to sin continue any longer therein? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. And in Steps of Christ, Ellen White says that one sin persistently cherished, will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. So, <clears throat> to understand what Paul is saying here, when he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, he's not saying, <clears throat> it's okay to have a few sins hanging around. What he's saying is, when you're dead to sin, you're dead to sin. That's what it means. We don't continue in sin. Here, our example, Christ died. He was raised from the dead, and he dies no more. And he says to us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. And in verse 
13, continuing he, or, yeah, verse 13, he says, neither, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So you have a choice of who to yield here. Do you yield to God, or do you yield to sin? And when you yield to someone, he's going to develop this concept. It gives you the concept that we are a servant to whom we're yielding to. <clears throat> Either we are servants of sin or servants of God. It's interesting that the 144,000 are called the servants of God. Verse 14, then, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law but under grace. Verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. So Paul makes that point again. And let me just say this, make this illustration. It's about time to wrap up our Bible study portion, and we'll finish chapter 6 next week. But here's the point. Christ died. He's raised from the dead. He dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. We, that like as Christ was raised from the dead, we also walk in newness of life. Therefore, we are dead to sin. Sin does not reign in our mortal bodies. And sin has no more dominion over us. When we become dead to sin, Christ, when Christ died... He doesn't come back down and die a few more times every once in a while. That's it. And what Paul is saying here is, when we are buried with Christ into his death, when we surrender completely to God, when we are crucified with Christ and experience justification by faith, we become dead to sin. When we become dead to sin... Sin no longer reigns in our mortal bodies, and it has no more dominion over us, because we are now dead to that. Now, <clears throat> I realize that we can all look at our Christian experience and say, well, there was a time when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, but what happened because I still have areas that don't always line up with <clears throat> the will of God, and I fall into sin. Fortunately, of course, the Bible does say, it does say in 1 John that if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, and if any man sin, we have an advocate. So we are thankful that God is merciful to us. He understands our weakness and that if we do sin, that forgiveness is available, but also cleansing is available. It's not just one or the other, but both are available. But what Paul is saying is, is that, look, when the, it is possible in the Christian life to have victory over sin. And as a case in point, how many people can we think of who maybe were alcoholics or addicted to tobacco or something of that nature, and when they accept Jesus Christ into their lives, Christ gives them victory over that sinful habit, and they never go back to it. I mean, they are dead to that habit. It never comes back. And so, and there, I think there, there's probably some people sitting in this room who may have been addicted to some of those habits in the past. And the question is this, if God can give us the victory 
over alcohol and tobacco, and, he, and we've seen him do that in, in many people's lives. Why can't he give us the victory over things like gossip and selfishness and anger and losing our temper and impatience and things of that nature? If we are dead to sin and Christ is living in us, what Paul is saying is that according to the power of the gospel, Christ will live out his life through you. And if Christ lives out his life through you, he's not going to snap at the person that makes you irritated and this, that, and the other thing. <clears throat> and that's a powerful, powerful concept <clears throat> that sin shall not have dominion over us. We are not under the law, but under grace. And to be under grace is grace reigning through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 5.21. And <clears throat> this is where I'm going to wrap up today, but then when you go through verses 16 through 23, what Paul does, he makes the comparison of being servants of sin or servants of God. And when you are servants of God, and I'll say this, in verse 22 it says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now, have we talked about being made free from sin earlier in this chapter? And what was that the same as? being justified. So, being justified, we become servants to God with our fruits unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And I believe that what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about servants of God, and as I said earlier, the 144,000 are called the servants of God. The book of Revelation describes a group of people who are without fault before the throne of God, there is no guile in their mouth. In the judgment, they were found to be without fault before the throne of God, which means they experienced the power of the gospel because in the first three chapters, Paul says, if you are not <clears throat> under God's grace, you will receive the wrath of God in the judgment. But yet, here's a group of people, the 144,000, who are without fault before the throne of God. They're called the servants of God. And Romans 6 says, if you're a servant, you're made free from sin or justified. So I'll close with that, but the last thing I want to say is to be justified <clears throat> is not just to have some legal declaration without any change. Paul is too clear to be misunderstood. Ellen White is too clear to be misunderstood when she says God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And sanctification, you know, she says sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Well, yeah, because Paul says I die daily. I'm crucified with Christ daily. I, sanctification is maintaining that initial experience of being crucified with Christ because the old man wants to have a resurrection every day. And Romans 7 talks about that. And we'll get to that in, probably in a couple of weeks here. But thank God for the power of Jesus Christ that we can be made free from sin. And so if any of us here are struggling with sin tonight, I encourage you to come to Jesus Christ. He's described as our merciful and faithful high priest in Hebrews. And that he will give us grace and mercy to help in time of need in Hebrews 4. And he will help you, whatever it may be. He will help you with whatever sin you are struggling with to give you victory and to give you peace. And that's the power and the goodness and the mercy of God.